building up uh, this worldview from scratch, um, as much as he is also looking at Holland, where he lives and is prime minister, and looking at America and looking at places that are uh, religious and reformed in certain ways. The Puritans came here in the early 1600s uh, and seeing the ways in which Calvinism has built itself into particular institutions, not only in the church, um, but in politics and in the family and elsewhere. And he's going back and describing the underpinnings um, of intellectual thought that support them. And what he wants to say is, that's what makes Calvinism great. It makes it better than all of these other things um, because, of all the thing, because of what it's built on and the progress that it's creating in my country and in your country. And therefore, what we need to do is push away um, these modern influences that are coming at us. <clears throat> Does that make sense? So that's, he gives us a little brief overview at the beginning uh, that says essentially that, that Calvinism is the, the richest and fullest form of Protestantism. Um, and then he asked the question then about how that relates to religion. And he says here in the first part, you'll see that Calvin in a masterstroke created its own place before the gaze and astonished world, an entire religious edifice Confessions, theology, church organization, church discipline, its own culture, which is what cultus is, and moral praxis, erected in the purest scriptural style. Religious modern thought has, I will not say created as with a master hand, but heaped it together like an unsuccessful amateur. Not one nation, not one family, hardly one solitary soul, to use Augustine's words, have ever found the rest for his broken heart. Augustine's words were, we will never find our rest until we rest in you, Lord. <clears throat> so basically what he's saying is that modernism, modern thought, hasn't created this kind of wonderful edifice with which to live in and to support. And he mentions three different kinds of modernism. Rationalism, which started back with Baruch Spinoza um, and Rene Descartes, which was the beginning of the questioning of uh, who wrote the Bible, basically. Spinoza read the Bible, and he was like, Moses didn't write this. He was a Jewish man who also lived in the Netherlands. Um, and more importantly was understood what we know as related only to the subjective person. So only I can figure out by myself what is real, which gets rid of revelation, which is why that would be a problem. He talks about materialism, which is the influence of Darwin. Darwin was not a materialist, but the theory of evolution was really influential in having people say, well, the only thing that's actually real in the world is what we can, is that things that have matter, things that we can touch and taste and see. And so during Kuiper's time, there was a famous theologian um, who named Feuerbach who said that God was just a projection of what was inside of us, of our own psychology. And then mysticism, which... Uh, he's going to go against a number of different times, which basically <clears throat> is the result of separating history from theology. If history understood as through archaeology and the historical critical method in Scripture, if history can't support what's in Scripture, then what must be important are the spiritual things. Those are the only things that we must have. And it created this sort of mystic psychology of what it meant to 
be with God, separated it from traditions, separated it from history, separated it from life. And all these three things are, are things that he's going to push against in this lecture. So he asks this question that he's going to explore throughout, and it says, what was the secret of the wonderful energy that created this entire religious edifice in the name of Calvin, Calvinism? <clears throat> and I should say that this is Kuiper's reading of Calvin, um, just so you know that. Um, so he does it in three ways, and you'll see if you through, uh, go through this. In bold, there's religion as such. There is life of the, the life of the church, and then there is practical or moral life. So he's going to separate. He's going to do these three things. And in the first part, he has a number of questions. The first question is, does religion exist for the sake of God or for man? So this is... Uh, a subjective question, a kind of rationalist question. What is religion for? And his answer is this. Man's religion ought not to be egotistical, but for man, and for man, but ideal, for the sake of God. This is its dogma of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty, obviously, is a big part of Calvin's doctrine, his understanding of the world. And so Kuiper is going to is going to explain this, and he's going to say that it's this doctrine that makes religion exist for man. And in relation to Calvin, he says, God himself makes man religious by means of the sensus divinatitis, the sense of the divine, which he causes to strike the chords on the harp of the soul. In its original form, in its natural condition, religion is exclusively a sentiment of admiration and adoration which elevates and unites, not a feeling of dependence, which severs and depresses. The sense of the divine was a really important, is a really important doctrine of Calvinism. And it is the idea that is imprinted on man's heart is a knowledge of the creator. It comes from Romans 1. That although they knew God, they did not honor him. And they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And Kuiper says that it's this sense that begins to show us that our worship is not for ourselves, it is for God. And he pokes at modern criticism and the very end. He says, to be irreligious is to forsake the highest aim of our existence. And on the other hand, to covet no other existence than for the sake of God, to long for nothing but the will of God and to be wholly absorbed in the glory of the name of the Lord, such is the pith and kernel of all true religion. Three years after this, this was 1898, in 1901, a German theologian named Adolf von Harnack would give lectures called What is Christianity? And in it, he would talk about the pith and kernel of Christianity. And there's no doubt that this was what was in the water. Even though those lectures were given three years later, he was writing about it, talking about it. This is what modern German criticism was talking about. And what von Harnack said is he said, you have to strip away the husk of history to get to the kernel. And that kernel, according to Harnack, was experiential. It was existential. And he summed it up in the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. 
Basically, the, the crux, the kernel, the heart of all religion was to love God and neighbor, to have this sort of dependence. And Kuiper says, no, that is not the kernel. That the kernel is to covet no other existence than for the sake of God, to long for nothing but the will of God, and to be wholly absorbed in the glory and the name of the Lord. That religion, the kernel of religion, is for God. It is not for us. Does that make sense? The next question he says is, he asks, is must religion operate directly or mediately? And the answer he gives is religion has to operate not mediately by human interposition, but directly from the heart. This is the doctrine of election. So again, the doctrine of election is a Calvinist doctrine that we're all familiar with that has an importance uh, that's particular to being a Calvinist. And he says that this shows why God operates directly to us. The question that he's asking related is in this first part of the paragraph. He says, must there stand a church, a priest, or as of old, a sorcerer, a dispenser of sacred mysteries between God and the soul, or shall all intervening links be cast away so that the bond of religion shall bind the soul directly to God. Does that make sense? Do we need someone else or something else to give us God, basically? And the answer he gives is no. <clears throat> and he does it this way. On the back, he said, or let's see, on the bottom of that page, page one, he says, of course, he clearly perceived that in order to be fitted for the true religion, fallen man needs a mediator. But such a mediator could not be found in any fellow man. Only the God-man, only God himself could be such a mediator. And this mediatorship could be confirmed not by us, but only from the side of God, by the indwelling of God of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the regenerated. Calvin was and is known as a theologian of the Holy Spirit. That's why we talk about something, uh, talk about union with Christ so much, which we're going to talk about a lot in Advent, that it is the Spirit as mediator that gives us access to God. And Kuiper connects this to the doctrine of election and explains it this way. He says, in all religion, God himself must be the active power. He must make us religious. He must give us the religious disposition. Nothing being left to us but the power to give form and expression to the deep religious sentiment which he himself stirred in the depth of our heart. The importance of the second point and the question of religion culminating as it does in the confession of personal election is incalculable. It's incalculable because of the first part, that religion is in God, it comes from God, it is to God, and he is the one that makes religion in us. But it is also incalculable, Kuiper says, because only he who personally stands before God on his own account and enjoys an uninterrupted communion with God can properly display the glorious wings of liberty. Kuiper is concerned very much with freedom and Christian freedom, freedom in the church and being able to speak back against different priests that may be 
saying something they shouldn't be saying or doing something that they shouldn't be doing. And he says, when God makes religion in you, when he is the mediator, then you can be free. If you, standing on your own, are trying to have that mediation through anything else, then you're going to be bound to that anything else. And being bound to that anything else is not free. And that doesn't create a world that we want to live in, essentially, um, as Kuiper understands it. The third question that Kuiper asks is, can religion remain partial in its operations or has it to embrace the whole of our personal being and existence? And he says this, religion may not remain partial as running alongside of life, but must lay hold upon our whole existence. This is the dogma of common or universal grace. He begins this way. Calvinism vindicates vindicates for religion its full universal character and its complete universal application. If everything that is exists for the sake of God, then it follows that the whole creation must give glory to God. The sun, moon, and stars in the firmament, the birds of the air, the whole of nature around us, but above all, man himself, who priest-like must concentrate to God the whole of creation and all life thriving in it. And he gives this wonderful picture of what that looks like in the bottom half after the ellipses. He says, the sacred anointing of the priest of creation, which is human beings, must reach down to his beard and to the hem of his garment. His whole being, including all his abilities and powers, must be pervaded by the sense of the divine. And how then could he exclude his rational consciousness, the logos which is in him, the light of thought which comes from God himself to eradicate? This is, I think, one of the best and strongest points that Kuiper makes. And it's the thing that he's really known for as far as knowing that the reign of God, um, that he has his fingerprints on everything, that that God can say that everything is his. And what he's saying is not only is this glorious and does this make God glorious, but that Calvinism is bigger than modernism. That in modernism, the idea of life, the conception of who we are and why we are living and who God is and what we are to do is far too small and it's far too compartmentalized. And that is the result of historical criticism and modernism in general is that it creates fractures, that it just pokes into the stories of our life. And in this case, in in the case of theology, the story of scripture. And it just deconstructs it and it tears it apart. So much so that you just have to kind of shift it into different holes and your life becomes fragmented in different ways. Because you want to worship and be spiritual and Um, and have this connection with this infinite God, uh, as we may have seen in kind of a a deistic, what they call um, uh, therapeutic deism these days. Um, But you can't do that living in the world, that in your life you're committing to certain things. Um, and, And so Kuiper is saying that all of life, All of creation is under the realm of God. And it plays itself out in this way. 
in the second paragraph. He says, The Calvinist demands that all of life be concentrated to his service and strict obedience. A religion confined to the closet, the cell, or the church, therefore, Calvin abhors. God is present in all of life with the influence of his omnipresent and almighty power and no sphere of human life is conceivable in which does not maintain its demands that God shall be praised, that God's ordinances shall be observed and that every labora shall be permeated with its aura in fervent and ceaseless prayer. The concept of aura and labora is a monastic concept. It's the idea that if you want to be religious, you've got to go live in a monastery. And when you go live in that monastery, then you can work, you can labor, and you can pray. And Kuiper says, no, that Calvinism is much bigger than that, that it's not confined to monasteries. It's not confined to your private life. This is what I believe, but you get to believe what you want to believe, that it does, in effect, permeate all of existence. And that, therefore, has everything to do with how we work. Wherever man may stand, he says, whatever he may do to whatever he may apply his hand in agriculture and commerce and in industry or his mind in the world of art and science, he is, and whatsoever it may be, constantly standing before the face of his God. He is employed in the service of his God. He has strictly to obey his God, and above all, he has to aim at the glory of God. For not only did God create all men, not only is he all for all men, but also grace extends itself not only as a special grace to the elect, but also as a common grace to all mankind. That when God created the world and he told man to work the land and subdue it and to be fruitful and to multiply, that this was woven into the fabric of our existence. And to tear that apart... And to make it smaller than it is, is bad. It's bad. He's saying that this is the kind of thing that builds up communities. It builds up cities. The fourth question. Can religion bear a normal or must it reveal an abnormal soteriological character? The answer. Religion's character should be soteriological i.e. it should spring not from our fallen nature, but from the new man restored by palingenesis, which is just regeneration, to his original standard. This is its position in the twofold dogma of the necessity of regeneration and of the necessity of sola scriptura. So again, sola scriptura, regeneration, that these <clears throat> mean that religion is about saving people. It's about conversion. And he starts by saying this, he says, The necessity of sola scriptura was, for Calvin, the unavoidable expression for all dominating authority of the Holy Scriptures. And even now, it is this very dogma which enables us to understand why it is that Calvin, why the Calvinist of day considers the critical analysis and the application of the critical solvent to the Scriptures as tantamount to, abandon, to an abandoning of Christianity itself. Sin brought separation. And the opposition, which is manifest nowadays against the authority of the Holy Scripture, is based on nothing else than the false supposition that our condition, being still normal, our religion, need not be soteriological. When the sun shines in your house, 
bright and clear, you turn off the electric light. But when the sun disappears below the horizon, you feel the need of artificial light. And the artificial light is kindled in every dwelling. Now, this is the case in matters of religion. So, when you start tearing the Bible apart, you lose, Kuiper says, the doctrine of sin. And when you lose the doctrine of sin, you lose any means or possibility of salvation or conversion. You are just yourself. You're becoming enlightened. You're becoming more spiritual. You're becoming maybe nicer to your other people. You're, you're becoming dependent on something that's giving you meaning in life, but you are not being saved from anything. You are not being made from one man or one woman into a new man or into a new woman. And this, he says, strikes to the heart of what it means to be a Christian, to be a Calvinist. And this only comes, he says, from the Scriptures. That if you tear the Scriptures apart, then you're not going to see that. That the life that you have is actually not the life that you are meant to have. Not the person that you are meant to be. But, he says, and make sure that you can't just come to a knowledge of that by studying the Scriptures, right? If, if you just could do that on your own, studying the Scriptures in an office, then the people of that time, the historical critics would know this because they spent all their time looking at scriptures and looking at the history that was behind it. And so he says in the next paragraph, For the Calvinists, therefore, the necessity of the Holy Scriptures does not rest in reasoning, but on the immediate testimony of the Holy Spirit. Our theory of inspiration is the product of historical deduction, and so it is also every canonical declaration of the scriptures but the magnetic power with which the scripture influences the soul and draws it to herself, just as the magnet draws the steel, is not derived but immediate. All of this takes place in a manner which is not magical nor unfathomably mystical, but clear and easy to be understood. God regenerates us. The Spirit regenerates us, illuminates us, turns the light on, so to speak, of the scriptures so that we can see that God has come to save us, that we are to be converted. And that leads to what the second thing that Kuiper is very famous for, a different kind of worldview. He says, now in the Bible, God reveals to the regenerate a world of thought, a world of energies, a world of full and beautiful life, which stands in direct opposition to this ordinary world but which proves to agree in a wonderful way with the new life that has sprung up in his heart. Therefore, at the end, he says, for this reason, the Calvinist puts no shackles on science. And this is important, right? Darwin's written um, The Origin of the Species. Materialism is not is, is declining, but it's still rather influential. And, there, and he's definitely setting himself up in opposition to modernism. But he's setting himself in opposition to it as a life system, as a worldview, so to speak, not science on its own. What he's saying, what he's, take, he's taking Calvin's idea that the world is the theater of God's glory and scripture is the, the eyeglasses, the spectacles with which we see that glory in the world. And once the scriptures, through the Spirit, illuminates to us what the world actually is, 
and who we are actually meant to be, that we are sinners meant to be saved by God, then we can begin to investigate and understand science. That the scientists pre-enlightenment were Christians. That they wanted to look at the stars in the sky because that's where the glory of God was. So the Christian doesn't have any opposition to science per se, but does have an opposition to this idea of this ordinary world where all that we can know and understand happens by ourselves, where the only thing that is real is what has matter. And he says, that's not true. That God is not just a projection of the things that we want, that God is, in effect, real. Okay, that is the first part. Questions? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Colonel? Yeah. Okay. Ask your question. Oh. So in this section about conversion here, this last one that we just did, yeah. So the, the idea is, is that um, if you don't have sin, you can't be saved. You have to be saved from something. Um, and historical criticism broke apart the scriptures such that it wasn't about being saved. It was about enlightenment. It was about knowing. It was, about, um, it was about progress. It was about becoming your best and fullest self, um, that your relation to God was going to make you fuller and have more purpose, and, but it wasn't going to save you from sin. Um, <clears throat> it wasn't going to save you from sin because the only thing that is actually real is what you can touch that this idea of debt to God would not actually be a real sort of idea or sort of thing. That would be what the materialist says. And the mystic would say, might say, wouldn't say that, the mystic would say that, and even Harnack might say that, even Harnack would say this, that, um, that God <clears throat> wants people to be with him, and so God is saving everyone. Essentially, you become the universalist. Um, because man has been created this um, psychology and this disposition to receive God. And if they don't, then that's on them. Then that's their fault, and they didn't reach their highest potential. Um, But that doesn't mean that God isn't going to be with them after they die, that there isn't any sort of judgment on that score. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Operations and yes. 
he that, that's in this particular section that we cited. Correct. I Yes. His issue is not with the sacraments, it's with the priesthood. <clears throat> so his foil is Catholicism, basically. Um, it can be other things, um, different forms of whatever kind of religion, where you, any kind of idolatry, right, um, where the idol is the thing that gets you there. But I think specifically he's talking against the priesthood of the Catholic Church, which is a very Reformation thing, right? Um, that it was the priests that were holding the sacraments against other people to try to get something that they wanted. And they said, well, I have the ability to say who goes to heaven and who doesn't. So you've got to pay me to make that happen. Um, and, and the reformers, Luther was like, no, 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 that's not how this works. Um, that God does access himself to us, that he gives himself, he accommodates himself to us in the sacraments by the spirit. Um, and we'll talk about covenant here later, that he's a, a He's, the covenant is essential to how Kuiper understands the world. But that covenant, even in the church, um, happens to a collection of individuals that are united only in Christ, in union with Christ. And it's that union with Christ that sets all of the, that mediation and those relationships in place. Um, not any kind of priest or not any kind of work or anything like that. Does that make sense? Yes. <clears throat> I think I think what's difficult, yeah, yeah. I don't know enough about sort of the whole of Kuiper's thought to say one way or another, but I can say this, uh, based on this, is that the spirit is going to be the essential thing. And, and he is going to push back against um, something like a sacramentalism that feels like pantheism or panentheism. Once you start saying that God exists in things, then that's the kind of that is going to, he's going to hear mysticism in that. He's going to hear kind of new age, God is in the world and I'm in the world and, um, and so I, and basically so I can worship idols. And he's going to, he wants to make a separation between the creator and the creature really, really thick and really, really distinct and say it's only the spirit that can do those things. Now, I'm really confident that he's going to make exceptions to the sacraments in important ways and kind of qualify and do that sort of stuff. Um, but in the whole of his argument, the, the spirit, the direct mediation of God by the spirit um, through the scriptures is what makes people free. It makes people free uh, to worship God without any kind of um, need for works. It makes people free from the rule of priests in important ways when they're trying to hold the things of the church over them in ways that they shouldn't. 
that the reformers can push back against that and it makes people free by making them priests and allowing them to go and preach the word and have a priesthood of all believers so that when they're working uh, and they're living and they're talking that they can do so, or do all of those things unto the glory of God. Yes. Right. Yes, and he's, and he's going to talk about this later, but you think about the politics of, um, of the Catholic Church when they, take a, when they were the Holy Roman Empire, um, and they could use the church as, a, as leverage. Um, and this kind of doctrine of mediations prohibits that from taking place. Um, and he makes an argument that it establishes what we know as democracy, um, that it establishes the kind of government that he had um, and was prime minister of in Holland, and it establishes the kind of government that we have. Now, that gets complicated um, in really important ways because the French Revolution is his foil, right? But who were huge fans of the French during the French Revolution? We were. Thomas Jefferson was. So we have very much both of those things. Yes? That's right. Yes. 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 He wants to get rid of that something else in the middle. All right. Let's go to the life of the church and the essence of the church. Um, He splits up the life of the church into three sections. The essence of the church, which is in God, the manifestation of the church or the way that the church shows itself to us in the world, which is from God and the purpose of the church, which is to glorify God. Kuiper um, says the Westminster Confession has got this right. He says, in its essence, for the Calvinist, the church is a spiritual organism, including heaven and earth, but having at present its setter, and the starting point for its action not upon earth, but in heaven. The Westminster Confession beautifully sets forth this heavenly, all-embracing nature of the church when it says the Catholic or universal church which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been or are or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all and all. Only thus was the dogma of the invisible church religiously consecrated and apprehended in its cosmological and enduring significance. The church on earth does not send up its light to heaven, but the church in heaven must send its light down to the church on earth. I think it's a really lovely sentence, and I think it's really important to understand. And it, and it does set, it pushes against the kind of religious project that was happening when the, um, the strategies of modernism were, were pouring themselves into every aspect of life. They were trying to build a new kind of civilization that was to be better, there was to be progress. We were to know more and be more enlightened and have more freedom. But we were going to build all those things for ourselves. We were going to decide what they were for ourselves. And that's why it's important that Kyber says, he looks around and he says, well, I've been hearing that we're going to build a new kind of religion. 
a new kind of church with all of these new things that we're learning. And we haven't built anything. We haven't had anything. <clears throat> and I, he, in a lovely way, he flips it on its head and he says, and the reason then why, Cal, why Cal, how Calvinism gets its energy to build confessions and churches and cultures and discipline is that they're not building it by themselves. That the church in heaven is sending its light down to the church on earth. He continues this in the manifestation of the church. In the beginning, he says this. He says, as such, it displays unto us, the, the church, the visible church, different congregations of believers, groups of confessors, living in some ecclesiastical union in obedience to the ordinances of Christ himself. So that means this, skipping down. The real essential church is and remains the body of Christ, of which regenerate persons are members. Therefore, the church on earth consists only of those who have been incorporated into Christ, who bow before him, live in his world, and adhere to his ordinances. And for this reason, the church on earth has to preach the word, to administer the sacraments, and to exercise discipline, and in everything to stand before the face of God. This, is the same time, this at the same time determines the form of government of this church on earth. Here's what's really interesting about this for Kuiper, is the next part. Let me now draw your attention to an, another most important consequence of this same principle. The, to the multiformity of denominations as the necessary result of the differentiation of the churches according to the different degrees of their purities. If the church consists in the congregation of believers... If the churches are formed by the union of confessors and are united only in the way of confederation, then the differences of climate and of nation, of historical past and of disposition of the mind come in to exercise a widely variegating influence and multiformity of ecclesiastical matters must be, must be the result. That the denominations must be the result. And I think it's important, I think it's interesting, um, particularly at this time, that Protestantism is translatable. Even scripture itself is translatable. The Catholic Church at this time was still only talking in Latin. Everything was only happening in Latin. Church was the same everywhere around the world. And Kuiper is pushing against that. He's saying no, that the church, the manifestation of the church, because it exists in the body of Christ, is contextual. That it happened, that we have, we have to preach the word, we have to adhere to the ordinances, we have to administer the sacraments, we have to exercise discipline, but we have freedom of context where we are. And this, importantly, leads to that third point. He says, from the Calvinistic viewpoint, therefore, it is impossible to speak of a national church as being destined to embrace all the inhabitants of a whole country. The Church of Christ is not national, but ecumenical. Not one single state, but the whole world is its domain. <clears throat> that Kuiper is giving the authority to the church over all the world not to the nations. This would not play itself out well in Germany in the 1930s and 40s, who, when Hitler rose to power, appealed to the Lutherans and made the church his own. And they had a national church, and Bonhoeffer and Bart and others pushed against that and said that that's not how it is. And Kuiper is saying that, and Kuiper is saying that 40 years beforehand, that the church is ecumenical, but it is not national, that is contextual all around the world, that it exists all everywhere because everywhere is the domain of God. And the purpose of the church 
is to glory God, is to glorify God. So the church exists merely for the sake of God. But he says, I think, an important thing, because it is unique to Calvin, um, here at the end, after he talks about church discipline, preserving the sanctity of the covenant. He says, finally, we have the service of church, philanthropy, and the diaconate, which Calvin alone understood and restored to its primordial honor as an indispensable and constitutive element of ecclesiastical life. And this is true. Calvin did do that. Um, the, the diaconate was basically, at the time, was a special kind of priesthood, and it had lost any kind of understanding or ability to serve or to love um, widows or orphans or people that were in need or people that were distressed. And Kuiper says that Calvin understood that it is an indispensable and constitutive element of ecclesiastical life, that this kind of service to God by the diaconate is part and parcel of the life of the church. What time are we done? Okay. Then I'm going to... Yeah, go for it. Yes. Um, for the sake of time, we'll just read the very end. The question that he asks about moral life is says, well, if you're a Calvinist and you believe in predestination and the perseverance of the saints, um, then why in the world would you live a godly life? Like what, what, how does that push against your ethics, essentially? And he says a lot of wonderful things here. That last paragraph is really beautiful. I'm just going to read the very end. <clears throat> he says, love and adoration are to Calvin themselves the motives of every spiritual activity, and thus the fear of God is imparted to the whole of life as a reality, into the family and into society, into science and art, into personal life, and into the political career. A redeemed man who in all things and in all the choices of life is controlled solely by the most searching and heart-stirring reverence for a God who is ever present to his consciousness and who ever holds him in his eye. Thus does the Calvinistic type present itself in history. This is the Calvinist understands the glory of God and the sovereignty of God and the election of God and the conversion of his soul, um, <clears throat> that the, the presence of God in the church so much that he can do nothing else but re- return that glory back to God again and again um, and root himself in the word of God, the commandments of God um, by what he has to say because, it, because everything begins and ends with God. And that is why... Um, there is a particular kind of life that happens um, with the Calvinists. He says, and so he's not like Kant um, of the time where the lawgiver, um, where he stands before the face of God because he sees God and walks with God and feels with God, <clears throat> that the Calvinist, oh, hold on, does not like Kant ascend in his reasoning from to the idea of a lawgiver, but he stands before the face of God. So the Calvinist doesn't think like, here are all the things that I need to do 
um, because I'm looking at my life. He's saying, God has given all these things for me, and I trust that they are good because I trust that God is good, and he's loving, and he's loved me in particular ways, and he saved me in a particular way. Questions? Okay, feel free to, um, to read through this and have questions. If you don't have one and you want one, I'd be happy to print one out for you. We do, I don't know if we're done with all the books, um, but we had some books. If you would like to read the whole thing, you can read more. Um, but this is a really interesting moment in time. Um, <clears throat> 30 years after this, this idea of modernism and fundamentalism would split the Presbyterian church and would be the beginning of what we understand the PCA to be. Um, that these questions of deconstructing the story of, history, the story of Scripture and trying to understand how it relates to history and to science and what that means for our life and how we read Scripture and how we treat one another um, <clears throat> really comes to a head in this moment in time. It's really, really significant um, and created, a, a, I mean, it, it created what we know as fundamentalism. Um, that these are the things that we have to believe, no matter what. Like, pre, we presuppose these. These are assumed that if you worship God, that these are the things that happen, and we're not going to challenge them. Like, we have to take them on faith. We have to work them out in ways that we want to work them out. And that still plays itself um, into our life. I mean, the national church plays itself into our life um, in different kinds of ways. So it's good to, good to think through. So, all right, let's stand and pray. God, thank you that you are the God of all things, that you are the God um, who holds all the universe in his hands, um, where the whole heavens and the whole earth scream of your glory, and where we, by your Spirit, can see that you love us and that you want to make us new again. You want to make us into ourselves and make the world the way that it should be. We pray that in this Advent season that we would wait expectantly for that to happen and for that to come and we would see it in the person, the child of Jesus Christ. Amen.